Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, what's up, friends? My name is Andre, and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about everything tennis from recreational to professional and quite literally everything in between. And today we are here to settle a question. Maybe not settle, but we're definitely going to try to discuss it as in-depth as possibly can, as we possibly can. Um, and this is a tennis question for the ages, the question of the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And the male part of the game, we haven't, I haven't yet gotten all of the statistics for the women as I should be studying. I know I'm a terrible tennis fan, but anyways, I, and I have here with me a very, very special guest that I've met probably like two weeks ago on a nice platform that I really love. I get so many news from Twitter and I have here with me Owen Lewis, whose handle is Tennis Nation, I believe yeah, on Twitter. You can... Yeah, exactly. And you can follow him right now. And he also has a blog. And But before that, uh, Owen, can you just present yourself a little bit? Like how, how long have you been following tennis? Do you play tennis? Who is your favorite? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Owen. Um, I've been into tennis since 2016. I watched the French Open and I was amazed uh, at how a player could come back from like two sets down how they kept fighting even when they were way behind. And that just really interested me into the game. I knew it was like, uh, unlike all other sports. So yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Um, and can you, can you just like, uh, tell us like, what's your blog so that people can go and read it. I oh, know yeah. we have like extremely interesting statistics and, um, I read one in particular that was really interesting about choking and opportunity. That was a really fun read for me. So yeah, what's your what's your blog, man? Oh, I appreciate it. Um, my blog is called The Racket. I started it early in 2019. I try to write about a balance of things. I'll do live reports of matches. Sometimes I'll write about the scoring system of tennis, which I love, and why I didn't really like Patrick Moradoglu's UTS. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. I'll analyze a player. I did an article on the GOAT debate. So th there's a lot of stuff on there. Check it out. Cool, sweet. And now that you've mentioned great segue, by the way, on the GOAT thing, um, let's start by maybe explaining a little bit, like, what even is the GOAT debate? Like, what are you even trying to just to settle? Is there even a possibility of there being a greatest of all time, you think? Yeah, I think there is. So, I mean, there have been so many tennis players, and most of them don't win majors. But Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, those are the three candidates for the debate for most people. Uh, they're all playing right now. And... They've so they've accomplished so much, and yet their resumes are very different. And so it can be mm -hmm. really tough to compare them. 
But I do think that these are the three best male players ever. So I think in the debate, it is between these three. And I think one of them will end up going down as the greatest of all time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess for me, if I were to try to answer this question myself would be, I have, I have struggled with the fact, well, I'm, I'm 27 and I've been following tennis since the late 2000s and you you're even younger so you've been following since 2016 so we ha definitely have missed on a ton of great tennis players of um the past that have set the first few great records Pete Sampras Bjorn Borg um Jamie Connors those are all people that we've missed by sheer fact of not being born at that time so that sucks a bit um and even but even struggling with that I I think that there is uh, some sort of cut in in, in the sense of uh of era i feel like the era doesn't even though you can say oh for example if um roger federer would come with the same racket and the same skills to play in the in the 60s he'd probably crush everybody but that's kind of like now you're trying to get it i think in terms of a uh, time frame it's it's more about the fact that they those people have been able to accomplish things and how the ten the the the, the game has changed and even though we try to balance things out for example um, if I'm not mistaken, the Australian Open wasn't necessarily a an important Grand Slam, if you will, by the time Borg was there. Um, and he only played once, by the way, which is freaking strange. So even balancing those things out, I still think that our best candidates for greatest of all times are still between Novak Djokovic, Roger, Roger Federer, and Rafael Nadal. And... It's only it's it's even, it's even more than numbers. It's all about I, th I think there's the, the domination that they've been brought to the game. Um, it's just way too 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 insane to compare um, from past generations. There was barely even a chance of anybody trying to get a hold of the number one ranking, apart for Andy Murray, who was for the longest time considered part of the Big Four, which is now just the Big Three. Um, and to be perfectly honest, my clear, clear cut for um, the GOAT debate is definitely the open year in 1968, uh, when players were allowed to play on Grand Slams before that. It's, it's just too complicated, too complex. And a little bit nuanced of a cut for me is 1973. That's when the ranking started. And even still, it's really weird. For example, I don't know if you know about the Guillermo Vilas um number one uh, contra controversy that he had in 1970s. Oh, no, I don't. So basically what happened is that they used to count the ranking points differently at that time. And Villas ended up uh, going 135 to 15 in a season, something like that. But he still ended up just number two. He didn't even go as a number one ranked player because they counted the points differently. So even with all of those conversations, all of the things that we have, all of the statistics... I still feel like it's the most, um, the better picture that we have for a goat is within the era that we currently have. And so, like, what do you, what would you say, like, for for you are the the biggest things that are uh, in the era wise? Um, I know you mentioned for me once how Pete Sampras is worth being mentioned, but not necessarily in the debate. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm glad you hit on the other eras, like before the open era started, it's really impossible to compare because professionals couldn't even play at the majors, which is pretty much the mm -hmm. primary criteria for the GOAT debate for most people. And mm -hmm. even like 70s, 80s, it's tough to compare. They played with different rackets. Um, and so, and they don't play against each other. It's, they're 50 years apart, some of them. 
And so the only thing you can really go off of is their accomplishments. And when you look at how Roger Federer has won 20 majors and Yvonne Lendl, like, great player, but uh, eight majors, I think, never won Wimbledon. Uh, like, they're not really on the same plane in, like, the pantheon of the tennis greats. So um, mm-hmm. I really think that in the Open era, you can't really go before that to decide the GOAT. And I think based on everything the players have achieved um, this current era with the big three playing, that's those are the three GOATs. Yeah. Uh, and I think as well, like, one of the biggest things that define the big three, essentially, is how how they broke through, you know? Like, for example, Rafa Nadal, um, his, probably his biggest um, Grand Slam title. Of course, like, he has all the 12 Rolling Arrows and whatnot. But I think his biggest title, the one that essentially started Rafa Nadal, as we know him, was Wimbledon 2008. Even even if you can say that this match was probably not the best of all time. Yeah, I, I think agree. that match, I feel like that match defined how Nadal sees himself. Because he was able to beat Roger Federer, the five-time Grand Slam champion, the five-time Wimbledon champion um, at that time. Um, he was able to push through and get the get the W. And he was defeated twice in a row in the two years prior to that. So that was a major turning defining point for him. And as you mentioned, like uh, Lando wasn't able to do that. Like So many players at Borg wasn't able to find their way through in the US Open. And he was on grass. So he was... He was a pretty good player, but he couldn't find a way through. And I feel like Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer, and Rafa Nadal, they were able to find this way through. And for me, that's why this discussion is mostly centered around them. There's definitely arguments for other players, but I feel like the strongest ones are around those three. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, Something the big three have done that a lot of players haven't, like McEnroe, Sampras, Connors, Borg, is they've won all four majors. Even uh, Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, they've managed to get a French Open each, uh, somehow working around Nadal's complete dominance of that event. Nadal managed to grab an Australian Open in 2009, Um, so not only are they far and away ahead in the tally of majors, but they've gotten all four. They've established that they can play and win on all courts, so yeah. Yeah, and even if you consider that, for example, Roger Federer didn't in Novak Djokovic, well... Yeah, Novak Djokovic didn't have to go through Nadal. Neither of them had to go through Nadal in the French Open to get their French Opens. But they were still there. Like They gave themselves the opportunity to be there so many times that it showed up to them. It's not like you, it's not like you can only win the French Open if you have to beat Rafa Nadal. So it's, their accomplishment is not minimized by that. It, it would obviously be insanely more gratifying for the fans if they, had, if, um, they were to beat Nadal. In Federer, I guess he had like four finals against Nadal, even yeah, even more. I crazy. Yeah. And I was actually recently, um, yesterday I was watching, I was looking at some stats and I saw that Roger Federer had a, a breadstick against Rafa Nadal in the first set of the French Open 2006. Yeah. Yeah. And I watched the first set of that match and, and I was just appalled by Rafa Nadal. That was not the man that we know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that, but I, I definitely recommend at least that first set just to know that that breadstick is not at all uh, a good uh, portrait of like Rafa Nadal, the competitor. He was missing stupid shots, man. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It, it looked like a first round match. It was, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about Rafa is that he can play sets like that at the French Open. And then what happened after mm-hmm. that is he breadsticks Roger in the next set. 
won the third and the fourth, two close sets. But um, what I think is really amazing is that Federer and Djokovic has, have had the resilience to keep playing, keep playing well at the fringe and get that title. Federer, mm-hmm. before 2009, he had lost to Nadal the last four years at the event. Three finals, mm-hmm. one semifinal. And yet he keeps coming back, keeps playing well, finally gets it in 2009. And then Djokovic, he mm-hmm. lost to Nadal at the French Open 2012, 2013, 2014. In 2015, he finally beats him quarterfinals, only for Stan Wawrinka to upset him in the final. And then the next year, he comes back, still wins the title. So it's amazing that they have the resilience uh, to keep Mm -hmm. playing. They don't let the tough losses get to them, because we've seen losses destroy careers, really. And these three are just, they're practically invincible. Like, they're so durable. Um, They're mentally tough. A loss might keep them down for a month, but you know when the majors roll around, they're going to be there. They're going to be playing well. Yeah, I guess you're, you're totally right in like how you put like the endurance. Their physical and mental capabilities are like no other player. I guess potentially the the two only players that would come to my mind would be um, Connors and and Lendl, like in terms of like how mentally strong they were, and even those two couldn't necessarily make. Um, I think actually Connors may have won a lot more slams than that, but he was still not able to come up against like so so many others. And his career was durable, but he was not winning slams by by thirty years old. Like uh, mm-hmm. I think like ro- like Roger Federer, let alone like thirty seven. So um, even even if he was making the finals, he didn't have the dominance. Like, I guess that those three have. And Rafa Nadal, I think, is probably the most um, incredibly powerful mentally and to to come back from so many injuries that he has he's had in the past um and go back to number one the the defeat that he suffered against Djokovic is the one that it's for me it's 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 an it's a non-defeat for me because he was playing so terribly mm-hmm. in that match he he played <clears throat> sorry considerably worse than he played against Soderling in uh, 2009 Djokovic was just like waltzing through him Definitely, he's he him being a great competitor made the match enjoyable, but he wasn't it wasn't Nadal. Like I mean, it wasn't the Nadal that he would have wanted to be during that that match. So yeah, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- Go ahead. That's an interesting match. Like I mean, consensus is that wasn't Rafa. That that wasn't the Nadal who had won the nine French Opens at the time. His forehand was landing so short that it was almost painful to watch sometimes. Um, and he made the first set of fight. Second set was close until Djokovic got the break, but the match overall wasn't close at all. And so you rarely see that mentioned in the GOAT debate because uh, Nadal was at such a low point. And, like, all of them have had their dips at some point, and that's what makes it so amazing that they've rebounded and they're near the top of the rankings now because at that point many thought Nadal was done. And he came back, and he's won five slams since that point, I think, mm-hmm. after turning 30, which is just remarkable. Yeah. I had a blink. <laughs> that's what happens like when you do podcasts. Sometimes uh-huh. you think of a thought, and then you lose it. Yeah, that's no um, problem. <laughs> but I guess, like, if, you, if, you're, if we're trying to move on, like, I guess, for essentially... Because we've been kind of, like, talking almost... Um, Almost like high end, like essentially almost like how we feel about like their mental endurance and stuff like that. But it's not only that, like we definitely know that there is a ton of numbers that go into those that kind of, mm-hmm. they can almost 
prove how resilient those guys are. And I know you're, you're a big fan of numbers. You post a lot of them on Twitter. Yeah. Some of them I'm, I'm amazed that people even keep track of. <laughs> I've had some help uh, the from one, some people, yeah. but yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. The one that I would love to have in, in uh, when I did an episode about um, the ATP Ultimate Player, uh, I divided into at least like a hundred categories of uh, backhands and forehands and net play. Wow. Um, the one thing that I really would have loved to have, because I didn't, I didn't go deep dive too much into the statistics because otherwise that would have taken me like at least a month to finish that table. But uh, the unforced errors to winners, it would be one thing that uh, would have helped me a lot into figuring out what is the best forehand. Mm, and, definitely. But anyways, in in terms of the GOAT debate, we have several statistics that are talked about, and the most notable of those are Rixa number one, big titles, and, well, I guess big titles is divided in Grand Slam titles, Masters 1000 titles, and um, WT, uh, not WT, um, World Tour finals, right? Yeah. So... How would you rank those? Like, how, what, what would you what do you think is is their place in the goat debate? Well, I think majors are the most important, definitely. Um, they're not only worth the most points, but they're the most prestigious. Uh, uh, it's the best of five format, so you see how how fit players are there. It's where the pressure is the highest. Um, Masters one thousands are also important, I think, but I think the World Tour Finals, like. That's important. It's very subjective among people. Like, you see a lot of difference. Some people, it's worth 1,500 points. So on the face of it, you would think, okay, more important than a Masters 1000, not as important as a major. And I would say it's biggest relevance to this debate. Federer's won it six times, Djokovic has won it five times, and Nadal's never won it. And so mm-hmm. you see the pro-Nadal people saying it's a fast hardcore, yeah. it doesn't suit him, and it's at the end of the year, so he's tired or injured. And you see the other mm-hmm. uh, fans saying... Well, you know, he can't master that. He's not surface balanced. Uh, he's a clay specialist. And so th- there are a lot of different ways to look at it. I, I definitely think the World Tour Finals are important, not just because of how many points it's worth, but it's the top eight players every year. So you're playing against the toughest competition possible. And so if you can beat them, that's a really good measure of how well you're playing. So I definitely think it's important as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's a... The ATP Finals is a different. It's it's an interesting conversation, um, and I don't know if it's for it's just because it's me. But I I've read this comment before. I think it was fr- from uh, Ben Rothenberg on Twitter. That I I'm pretty sure he he mentioned he said that the ATP Finals are just a glorified exhibition. Uh, I've <laughs> and, seen people say that too. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting for me because I really want to get into it, and it's kind of. It's worth millions of dollars. I think it's mm-hmm. probably one. Of, it's, it's probably one of the most expensive tournaments. You're supposedly only getting matches that are quarterfinal to final worth yeah. in any tournament. But it, it it's worth fifteen hundred points, as you said. But it's some, somehow it still doesn't ring a bell for me. Like it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't actually feel that I'm watching something important, which is weird because so many players have actually demonstrated how much they want to win it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Lendl went in, in the finals like nine years in a row, which is freaking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, and Gustavo Kirten, for example, he actually ended up the year-end number one in 2000 because he won that tournament. Mm-hmm. And he had to go through Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras to do so in the semis and the final. Yeah, that's so, amazing. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that 
it definitely looks important. The numbers are there, but somehow the Grand Slam seems to seem to be so much over the top on that one. They seem to be so much so unreachable that the the sole fact of like trying to put the uh, ATP Finals at the same um, level or somewhat close to the level of the Grand Slams for me, it, it feels unreal. It feels unrealistic and. I'm not trying to defend Nadal, especially because I'm I'm a Novak Djokovic fan, yeah. and I would love for for Djokovic to win the 21st um, or 22, or even maybe 24. Like, what what if he ties to Serena Williams? That would be amazing. Uh, but um, I don't think it's a fair thing to blame Nadal for not winning it, and it's even more unfair to say that Nadal is a court specialist mm-hmm. because he can't win it. It's kind of, it's it's almost for me. Of course, Nadal doesn't have um, doesn't have a single title in this, whereas Djokovic and, and Federer do have uh, French Opens. But saying that, for example, if you pick uh, Federer's record against Rafael Clay, it it's almost saying that Federer is a terrible clay court player. Yeah, and, and that's <laughs> obviously not true. not true. He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, uh, just a couple of things about the ATP Finals. Oh, yeah. um, like, it really is weird. Is it? like this prestigious tournament with the best competition in the world, or is it a glorified exhibition? And I kind of think it's neither. Like, I think Mm -hmm. there are some issues with it. Like, surprisingly, there haven't been a lot of epic matches there. Last year was quite Mm -hmm. good. Team Djokovic was an amazing match. But when you're thinking of great matches, there aren't that many at the ATP finals, and it feels like there should be. And so I think the placement in the year is a problem. A lot of players are Mm -hmm. tired by the time they get there. And they just can't play at their best. Uh, Federer was injured in 2014. He was supposed to play Djokovic in the final, and he had to withdraw. Yeah. Djokovic got a walkover. And so it seems like that sort of thing shouldn't be happening. Maybe it should almost be like halfway through the year. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or on a rotating surface, um, because a fast indoor hard court isn't really representative of the whole year. So mm-hmm. I, I think there are definitely some changes that could be made, but that's a whole other conversation. So... Um, I think uh, yeah. I agree with you that it's not as important as the majors, but I do think it's a hole in Nadal's goat argument that he hasn't won it because I think it is a fairly important tournament. Yeah, in terms of like it, I've seen this argument about rotating surfaces a lot of times as well, and the only thing for me is uh, I don't I don't think I would like to agree with it. Like even even though even though the ATP Finals is kind of like a fabricated uh, tournament, it's not like, for example, it doesn't hold the same history as the Grand Slams, which mm-hmm. were essentially just began as small tournaments and now they're in gigantic. Uh, case in point, Wimbledon. But um, but the ATP Finals, I don't think... I think rotating surfaces could even damage Nadal's um, reputation for winning. Say, suppose next year they play it on clay. And he doesn't win. It's... If if he does if he does win that like that, the, on the contrary if he does win that tournament people are going to be even more on his throat for being a uh, court specialist because it's like he's only able to win it if it's on his uh, preferred uh, preferred surface. Oh, I see. And like- yeah, so like I don't I don't think that would be a great thing. And I feel like if you can't win on uh, in on indoor courts, you either assume it as to be like who part of you you are. Like Nadal is just not good on on clay courts on on not on clay courts oh my gosh but on uh, indoor courts that's that's a thing like it's it doesn't take away anything that he's done um, it doesn't take away his gold medal on the Olympics mm-hmm. that is probably a m- even more difficult achievement to to have 
because it only happens every four years. You have to be fit. You have to do that now. Otherwise, you're probably not going to have another opportunity. Um, so, and like, and that that's the thing. Roger Federer hasn't even been able to win the Olympic gold on grass. That's he true. was defeated by Andy Murray. So, um, it's a little bit of nuances like this. I feel like trying to manipulate the tour in a sense, in, in favor of someone, it, it feels unrealistic. Um and it's it probably would be a worse portrayal of Nadal's accomplishment if he were to win the ATP Finals on his preferred surface. Hmm. So uh, th- that's a good yeah. argument. Although I yeah, yeah. yeah. although I, I do agree though that injuries are a major problem, and part of that I think is because of the best of fives in Grand Slam. But that's even another territory that I don't really want to be going into right now. I have to keep those. That's all I'll say about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. What else do you think is uh, should go into um, the gold debate? And let's now that now that we've kind of like um, pretty much said that we are willing to comp- compare only the the big three. Um, let's let's move the scope into into those three guys. Okay. What matters about those three guys that would put one above the other? So um, as we've said, definitely majors, big tournaments, um, and something else that matters a lot, I think, is head to head. Uh, if you can't if you can't beat one of them, it's a lot harder to consider them the greatest of all time because you would first have to be the greatest in your own time uh, for mm-hmm. that to be true. I think also strength of competition happen- matters a lot. Like this is an imaginary scenario, but if someone has thirty majors and they never beat someone inside the top hundred, then it's not as impressive as if mm-hmm. someone won I don't know fifteen while beating a lot of top ten players. Although, that's another subjective part of the debate. But I think strength of competition definitely matters. I think beating high-ranked players and form players is more impor- is more impressive than beating players who are lower-ranked, not in form. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, surface versatility is another important thing. For someone to be considered the greatest of all time, they're going to have to win everything, some stuff on every surface, uh, exhibit a high level of play on hard courts, grass courts, clay courts, be able to develop strategies that went on slow, fast courts. So I think that's very important as well. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see some numbers. Like uh, you mentioned head to head. That's for me the most, the, the one that, because Roger Federer is probably the one that most people actually want to see, want to uh, give the title of GOAT. Mm-hmm. Um and even though, like, we see a lot of uh, crazy pools online that say that, like, Novak Djokovic has won it by, like, a landslide, I feel like those are really stupid because anyone can just go there and, like, I didn't, even, vote, I yeah. didn't, I didn't even get to vote. I didn't even know that this was happening. Mm-hmm. So it's totally unofficial, totally ridiculous. So I feel like doing at least... We, we may not get to the point of, in which that we're going to be like, oh, yeah, this guy is the GOAT at the end of this episode. But at least what we're doing is more, I feel like, has even has more value than the voting. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, when all yeah. of their careers are over, I'm not deciding my personal GOAT from a vote. I'm going to do a mm-hmm. study of numbers and then I'm going to try to figure it out for myself. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned head to head. And I think this is where Federer, who's the leader in majors, uh, faces his toughest battle in the debate because... Against Nadal, he is 16 and 24. Uh, only he's only won 40 percent of the matches. Against Djokovic, he is 23 and 27. So he is losing that as well. And then in majors, he's four and 10 against Nadal, six and 11 against Djokovic. So that's 
10 and 21 overall. Mm-hmm. And these are arguably the most important matches they play. In majors, the biggest stage against each other, their rivals mm-hmm. and GOAT candidates. And Federer's winning less than a third of the matches. Um, mm-hmm. And even if you cut it down to his prime, 2004 to 2012, he is 8 and 13, which is still not even close to winning half. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you cut it down to Nadal's prime, he's 18 and 5. And that's just a world of difference. Um, yeah. Prime for Federer, by the way, 2004, 2012. Nadal, I think, is 2005 to 2014. And then for Djokovic, I think I have these numbers somewhere. Uh, so Djokovic, from 2011 to 2016, he's 9 and 6. Uh, 12 and 11 from 2008 to 2016 against mm-hmm. Federer and Nadal in majors. So not as good as Nadal, but uh, he's winning more than half. So... A question is, how can you consider Federer the GOAT, maybe, if in these major matches he's consistently getting beaten by not just one guy, but two guys? Yeah. I think it's interesting because that's... I feel like when you when start comparing, like, even primes, that's when things start getting... Um, it's, it starts getting really difficult. That's when mm-hmm. we kind of miss details and there are things that we just have to assume at the end of the day. Because... Nadal, for example, he's five years younger than Federer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that his prime was probably in between 2005 to 2013. Yeah. And at, at that point, Nadal, 2005, Nadal is 20 years old. Uh, 19, 19 years old. yeah. Yeah. So to, to reach her prime that early in your career, the only, f- the, the fairest um, comparison in terms of age would be with Novak Djokovic. But Novak Djokovic peaked a little bit later. Definitely, than, yeah. Like, he did win uh, his first Grand Slam in 2008, but he didn't actually come to win another one in, since until 2011. It was such a long wait that for me, um, when, I, when, I, when I was looking at Novak during, uh, through the years since 2008, it was almost like I couldn't hope that he was going to win another major. For me, he was, it was almost certain that he would just end up his career as a one slam major, like so many have. Um, one slam uh, wonder. That's why. That's why I meant. It sounds um, so crazy now, Joe. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? And it's like now he he has he has won all of his other sixteen Grand Slams in the last decade, aside actually from this one, which is not new, new decade, but yeah. still, it's in it's in span of nine years. He's won sixteen majors. That's that's pretty insane. I think Federer has won. From 2003 to 2009. He won 15, I think. think. Yeah. Yeah. And then 16, 2010. Yeah. So that's still a pretty good, impressive uh, ratio of uh, winning. And now that, like, we're talking about Federer, I think even though, like we say, uh, you said, like, he has a a terrible head-to-head record against those two, even even outside uh, the majors, he isn't really doing exactly that much better. Maybe against Djokovic because he, he got to rack up a lot of victories before his prime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess Roger Federer, like in my particular view, and that's that's why I say, like for example, um, the the assumptions start to kick in that the numbers get to be a little bit more difficult to prove. Um, is that I feel like Federer suffers from being a transitional player. He transitioned between the old 90s era the lots of servant volleys to like some 
flat hitters. The, the tennis balls used to travel a lot slower if you look at some matches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that they weren't hitting that hard, but it just seemed that they weren't... The Maybe the standard of play was that they were not going to make that many balls back yeah. on court. And Federer, as a virtue of that, he managed to go along with that backhand of his without improving all that much mm-hmm. for for many, many years. And when, as I mentioned, I was watching the, the Roland Garros uh, final, Federer played mediocre with his backhand during yeah. the first set that he won 6-1. He never actually took um, the initiative on that wing. He was consistently uh, running um, running his around his backhand to try hit forehands to Nadal, um, whichever side he would pick. <laughs> and he, because of that, like I feel like he had to adapt so much more than those two guys, especially against Nadal, because, and and I think that's a, a, an argument that actually kind of goes um, with Nadal being probably. And as a, as a Novak Djokovic fan, it hurts me to say this, but I think I would probably rank Nadal as the greatest of all time. Really? Even though he doesn't, yeah, I, even though he doesn't have the 20 Grand Slams, I think he probably will, will get there. Um, but uh, the reason why is because Nadal created a new tennis world in which the baseline was king, you know? Yeah. Being a greatest player on the baseline. And he figured that out. He figured how to win matches from the baseline and to make solid top spin and cause ton of trouble to to tons of trouble to Federer <clears throat> and to Djokovic early on in, in his career. Djokovic just couldn't penetrate Nadal's wall. Um the 2009 uh Madrid final semifinal rather is case in point. Like Djokovic just couldn't get through it. And Roland Garros semifinals in 2000 and when was the one that Djokovic won in five sets? 15 15? No, it wasn't 15. Uh, 2013, they played semifinal yeah, five yeah, sets, yeah. but Nadal won that one. Yeah, yeah. So Djokovic just couldn't make it past Nadal. And that is that was Nadal's greatest influence in the in the game for me is how his baseline game changed mm-hmm. the game for, for me. And Djokovic had the, the advantage of reaching his prime after Nadal, having being able to study both of these guys' games. So he has time in his advantage in that sense so he was able to make his move when he kind of like knew uh what was coming from the other side whereas for Federer for me he kind of was was almost caught by surprise yeah and I don't want I don't want to weigh that too much into Federer's favor because he had time to figure that out and he only figured that in 2017 that's way too late but uh yeah that's kind of like where my take on this is a little bit yeah I mean you, you brought up some amazing points I gotta hit on a lot of stuff so um Federer being a transition player, he has a one-hand backhand because his heroes did. Totally reasonable to model it mm-hmm. after them. And yet, that's what's been his downfall time after time. Nadal attacks mm-hmm. it with a spinny lefty forehand. And um, that's something. Like, Federer has a bad record against Nadal. But let's not pretend that Nadal's game isn't practically designed to destroy Federer. His, uh, mm-hmm. his topspin forehand makes Federer constantly hit backhands around his neck. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Strokes of Genius documentary. Someone said, um, I think it was David Law, maybe. He said it was almost like the tennis gods said when Federer was dominating. You know, the game is becoming so unbalanced. Let's just drop this, like, lefty from the sky who has this perfect game to defeat Federer. And um, to a lesser extent, Djokovic as well. His uh, two-handed backhand, unquestionably the best ever, in my opinion. He can rip that cross court. He gives Federer a lot of trouble there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, like Federer doesn't have a great record against them. But as you said, um, with their primes, it gets hazy because he's far older than them. So after 2012, like, do you give the same weight to his losses or less because he was mm-hmm. older, maybe didn't have the durability he had in his younger days? Um, and that's where the debate gets tricky because some people will yeah. say, you know, Federer had his chances. Um, like, he was still playing well. And others will say, like, no, he wasn't. Like, he keeps losing when he uh, mm-hmm. left his prime. So that's where things get really tricky. I think you're right. Yeah. And even it's it's kind of like interesting, this discussion, because I'm going to counterbalance my own point in, in right now. It's that uh, um, a stat that I just recently discovered because of uh, you and a lot of other um, Twitter mm-hmm. guys that I've been talking to. Crazy numbers, by the way. Like, I, I, I'm amazed. I didn't think that there were that many people that were nerding about tennis as much as I was. You love to see being it. a professional. Yeah, <laughs> love it. But you guys mentioned a lot of break points and match point opportunities yes. in which Feather was just trash. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a little harsh, but um, he yeah. he has like a lot of missed opportunities. You know, um, I did a my, my pinned tweet is about this actually. So um, mm-hmm. in majors. Uh, Federer has produced against Djokovic 16 more break points than Djokovic has produced against him. Yeah. And yet Djokovic has broken seven more times. And yeah. like that that's it, really. Like He hasn't been able to take his chances. Djokovic and Nadal, um, there are other sets for that. Uh, they're just better on the big points. Um, you know, they'll make Federer hit backhands. They'll force baseline rallies. Federer's strategy is higher risk, and um, Djokovic and Nadal are able to play a safe brand of tennis that pays off for them time after time in the big mm-hmm. moments. Yeah. And um, I like they say like a safe brand of tennis, but it's not like yeah, they just true, kind true. of... Yeah, It's not like they were just like winning uh, every match by pushing the balls. Oh, so, definitely uh, not. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they're able to execute it more consistently, I should have said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. I feel like Nadal and Federer... Nadal and Federer. Nadal and Djokovic, they just keep finding the balance between aggression and defense very, very well and playing playing with margins and playing against the margins like on time and time again, as you said, like Novak Djokovic has produced less break points than Federer and yet has broken more times. So case in point and that for me, like I feel like in the sense of uh, the primes of their careers and mm-hmm. how nuanced this is, was last year's Wimbledon final because it's not like Federer had no chance of winning. In fact, he had two chances. He, of he had every chance of winning. He, yeah. he was the trophy yeah. was practically in his hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I feel like how how do you feel like that that weights in ter- in terms of Federer just not being able to get it, um, and now he's still talking about Federer. Like, oh, mm-hmm. we'll probably just try to move on for for other guys later on. But like, yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean, I think this is one of the best parts about tennis and one of the the cruelest parts of tennis. You know, like one point can make all the difference. Like, Federer yeah. had two match points, 8-7, 40-15 in the fifth set. If he wins one of those, for a lot of people, that kind of ends the GOAT debate for a while. He was 37 mm-hmm. years old. He would have beaten Nadal and Djokovic back-to-back uh, when when his 21st major, ninth Wimbledon. Like, that's an amazing achievement, especially yeah. at such such an old age. And instead... He misses a forehand. Djokovic comes up with one of the most clutch passing shots ever. Breaks, ends up winning this classic match. Well, not classic, but epic, dramatic, and um, fits that mm-hmm. tiebreak. And just like that, like tennis history has changed because of one point. Now, yeah. Federer needs to win seven more matches the next time he plays Wimbledon. 
instead of just being one point away. And so you think about that, but it's all in the past. You can't change it. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing because you can... Something amazing about Federer is I could probably handpick five points across his career that he's lost. And if you flip that so that he's won them instead, Mm -hmm. you could probably make him a solid GOAT right now. He's missed that many chances and in so many big moments. And so um, I think that it's not like losing those match points takes away from his case, really. It's more a case of what a missed opportunity for him because he could have added so much to his resume by winning that. And instead, Mm -hmm. Djokovic closes the gap between Nadal, um, him and Nadal, him and Federer. And more than that, Federer doesn't have a chance to extend his lead and he may not get another opportunity. Yeah. Um, And now that that we've talked a lot about Federer Mm -hmm. and how his uh, counter arguments for him being the GOAT are very strong, actually, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. But... Moving on to Nadal, we've already discussed him a bit, but like I want to dwell in a, in a little bit of a, a a thing here for Nadal, and it's a major part of Nadal's head-to-head and uh, record against Federer and Djokovic, and part of a major part of his um, Grand Slam tally is the fact that he just dominated Roland Garros for so many years. He has twelve Roland Garros titles. Yeah, I thought when I when I was uh, young, when I was a kid, and I looked at the stats and I saw the because I thought, well, Federer must be like the most, um, like the most con- decorated champion at Wimbledon, right? He has five, and then I saw Sampras had seven, uh-huh. and then I saw that Martina Navratilova had nine, and I was like, how is this even possible? Yeah. You have to be winning for ten years. You cannot possibly win tournaments like this for ten years. And now you have and this guy with twelve. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And every year I was like, I cannot even believe this. It's almost like it's unstoppable. And I think Almagro said it so hilariously, like Nadal is going to be sixty-five <laughs> in Roland Garros, and. It's it, You just kind of have to like raise your hands and be like, yep, yeah. what can you do about it? Just shrug. But in that same vein, he has 19 titles. 12 of those are Roland Garros. Right. He has a 10-4 record against Federer on majors. Six of those, Six are, of those, are, those yeah. are on clay. So um, I don't want to say, I don't want to be that guy and be like, <laughs> take away clay. the clay courts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, it's like, how much does that weight against Nadal that he has been able to... And how much does that kind of, like, counterbalance their head-to-heads a bit? Or yeah. does it counterbalance at all? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, because, again, there are two ways to look at this. One, you can say, oh, on clay, he's easily the best ever. Um, maybe him at the French Open is the highest level anyone's ever produced. And on the other side of things, you can say, yeah, but Federer and Djokovic are both better than him on hard courts and grass courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's two out of the three surfaces. So he's the best ever on clay, but overall, they're both better than him. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that, as with most things in the GOAT debate, my views fall kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, he mm-hmm. has beaten Federer at Wimbledon, and he's beaten Djokovic twice at the U.S. Open. So he's established he can win on all surfaces. But, like, again, you don't, I don't want to be that guy, but when you don't look at his clay court stats... Those are a big reason for why his record in majors is so good against the other two. Although I will say, um, like, if you do the thing where you take away the clay and he's 4-4 four and four against Federer outside clay, that's still very good considering Federer is a, best, is a better fast-court player than him. Whereas if you take away Wimbledon, Federer is 2-9 and nine against Nadal in the majors. So, um, mm. so it cuts both ways. But yeah... Um, I think the two ways to look at it are, on the one hand, Nadal's amazing on clay. A lot of his records will probably never be broken. 
And on the other hand, he's third best on hard courts and third best on grass out of the three. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I have to agree with you. And like putting him in third place at least makes, um, even though like people, other people have more records on um, on hard courts than he does. Like for example, if I'm, I think. Well, I was going to say Andre Agassi, but Andre Agassi has, like, what, six Australian Opens, I believe. Oh, four. So, four? Yeah. Um, okay. 1995, uh, 2000, 2001, 2003. Okay. Um, so, I think the reason why I would place Nadal still higher above is because he has had to deal with Djokovic and Federer. Mm-hmm. And I guess, for me, one of the counterpoints, the, the yeah, but about this case in Nadal is, like, Nadal has dominated the French and won 12 titles there. But he's been able to win in the US Open four times yeah. and the Australian Open once and Wimbledon twice. Uh, one of those victories against Federer in what is considered the greatest of all matches. Um, and it was in 2008. So it isn't like Federer was like... But that was Federer's prime. prime, yeah. Yeah, Federer was 26 years old. He, it's It's his prime physically. Like, I think somebody told me once that like at 26 years old, like that's where your body is at its best. So probably for the, the athletes, it's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, and that's going to differ person to person. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. point is that was like a good Federer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, But Nadal found a way to win matches against those guys since forever. It's like since the beginning of his winning ways, he's been winning against Federer um, and Djokovic and, and their favorite surfaces, whereas um, he's just managed to get such a stronghold on clay and I guess this favors him, even though he is not better than uh, Djokovic and and uh, Federer on on hard courts. I I think he is his different. The difference of level from those two guys to Nadal is not as big as those two guys to Nadal and Clay. <laughs> yeah, I agree, and that's why Nadal is still a goat candidate, even though he is third best on grass and he is third best on hard court. The difference between him and those guys on the fast courts is not not probably not even close to the difference between Nadal and those two on clay. He's better on clay by enough that it sort of balances out, and mm-hmm. at an average level, the three are very very close. Yeah. Um. So, I and that's like one of the reasons why I said like Nadal is for me. It's probably my goat candidate if I try to look as objectively as possible because I cannot even find another thing to call Nadal not a goat maybe pro- probably like weeks weeks and number one but he's been injured so many times that I feel like it's 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 lame for to say that mm, that's an interesting thing to bring up um he, he does get a lot of heat sometimes for not having as many weeks as number one it's not very close I think he is over a hundred behind Federer almost a hundred but yeah. when he got injured in 2009, uh, he was 5,000 points ahead in the rankings. Um, he was probably going to keep number one for that whole year, probably win a couple more slams as well had he not been injured. So, And it's crazy that he's accomplished as much as he has while injured because he's missed so many slams and in his prime that had if you pretend that he never got injured, he could have 22, 23 maybe. Yeah, solid. Yeah, I would say even, he, he he probably would have had more Australian Opens if he wasn't injured. Oh, definitely. So. 2014, I think, was almost a given. Yeah, exactly. That was the one point in which 
I remember I didn't even watch that match for two reasons. One is because it's at 3 a.m. Uh-huh. Um, from where we are at. And two, because I was like, it's it's Vavrinka. It's going to be a walk, like a walk in a park for Nadal. It's going to be straight sets. Then when I when I saw the pictures the next day, I saw Vavrinka holding that trophy. And I just couldn't believe my uh-huh. eyes. Yeah. Was... Vavrinka <laughs> lost like 26 sets in a row against Nadal before that. Like, Yeah. Yeah, he was very heavy underdog. Yeah, it was it was an amazing awakening for Vavrinka, mm-hmm. which is essentially it, it, it's a great title for her for another episode of this podcast, yeah. the awakening of Vavrinka. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it, it's for me really hard to find points against Nadal being the goat, even if I look at the the clay and uh, and the clay court and grass courts and other titles. And um, if he wins for me, just enough, just one uh, World Tour Finals. I don't think there is going to be much for me to say against his case for goatness. <laughs> hmm, that, that's interesting because I, I want to talk about the guy who we haven't mentioned yet. You're joking, yeah. Um I think there are even fewer arguments against him. I think his mm-hmm. his resume is the most balanced. Um, mm-hmm. He's won uh, eight Australian Opens, five Wimbledons, um, three U.S. Opens, one French Open. Uh, he's won all the Masters 1000 titles. Whereas uh, Federer and Nadal are both missing, at least two, I think. Um, Overall, he has a positive head-to-head against both of them. Um, Mm -hmm. He's beaten, I think, the toughest competition, according to ULO rankings, and if you look at majors. But the only thing he doesn't have in his favor is the number of majors. He's third with 17. So um, I think that if he ends up with the most, you can't argue against him. He has almost everything else in his favor, really. Yeah, um, that's true. But um, I think Nadal also has a good argument because he has almost as many majors as Federer and he has the positive head-to-head. So for me, and it feels crazy to say because Federer is a legend. Uh, his forehand is possibly the best ever. He's got an amazing backhand slice. His game is just spellbinding to watch when he's on. But I think the debate for me is between the other two, even now when Federer has the lead in majors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that like even even if I like I'm making the case and that's weird because I I've said thousands of times in this podcast even I'm a Djokovic fan I'll always will be I am really sad at what he, about what he did during the Adria tour <laughs> but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna crap on him more than I'm, people already did so but I do I like that you said that and it it, it kind of comforts me in a way just like oh yeah maybe Djokovic is the goat uh-huh. it's just that. The number of majors, man, is the one thing that for me, I look at it and I'm like, mm, this, if he can at least tie it, yeah. if he can at least tie it, he can. He, he definitely has a case. Even if, like, if he ends tied with Nadal, I give Djokovic a bit of an edge based on everything else he has going for him. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. The thing with Djokovic is in five set matches, like, you just can't get past the guy. Against Federer mm-hmm. and Nadal, he's six and one in five setters. And his one loss is against Nadal at the French Open. And even that, he was really close to winning. Yeah, uh, like, um, untimely net touch possibly cost him the match. Um, yeah. So, like, when it's close, he's winning almost every time. But then he has some losses in major finals to Favrenka, Andy Murray, uh, whereas mm. Federer and Nadal, they basically in major finals only ever lose to each other in Djokovic. Um, one stat that I think is interesting is at, in the U.S. Open Finals, one of Djokovic's best services, hardcore, uh, Djokovic is only 3-5. and five, And that's a really surprising stat because he's possibly the best mm-hmm. hardcore player ever on the men's yeah. side. And yet he's won less than half of those. Nadal has more hardcore 
majors, uh, U.S. Opens than him. Yeah. And this feels a bit like a statistical anom- anomaly because Djokovic yeah. is better on hard courts. Like, that's a given. But in those finals, he just hasn't been able to have a good conversion rate. And that's cost him a couple of majors. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who say, like, maybe the U.S. Open is more suited to Nadal. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the timing of the year, maybe people can hit, maybe people can hit through Djokovic a little bit more. And Nadal has a counter-punching ability. I don't know. It's... It, it's it's me just trying to find excuses to why you essentially put so well an anomaly in, in a statistical anomaly. It's like why? And I remember very clearly um, back when Nadal won Wimbledon and then he won the US the, the Australian Open the mm-hmm. next year. But the one Grand Slam that he hadn't even reached the final yet, which was the US Open. So many of us were just so much, so quick to say, Rafa Nadal is never going to win the US Open. Yeah, like, that, that's crazy. You look back, and people are saying in 2006, like, he's done. He's only ever going to win on clay. And you look at yeah. what he's done, it seems amazing. Yeah. So, back to, back to Djokovic now. Uh, what, so what are the arguments against him? Because, and I think it's important that we mention a lot of the against points, because yeah. so we, we, we all know the, 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 the pros. Right. It's... The, the 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 good statistics are right in our faces. They have this many majors. They have this many ATP Master Series. Djokovic has the only player um, allegedly to have won all the Masters 1,000 events. Yeah, that is that is the case for Lando, but he wasn't called that before. Mm-hmm. So Djokovic is the official um, lone um, owner of that title. So, what are the the points against Djokovic that you can see. Yeah, so I'll hit on those in a second. One thing I just want to talk about really quickly is um, you say, like, the pros are right now are faces and everything, and I think that's actually a bit of a danger of the GOAT debate. I think people who feel yeah. really passionately about it will spend a lot of time saying, like, oh, you know, off-clay Nadal's not great, or Djokovic has the fewest majors, uh, Federer didn't face them as often uh, early in his career, and we don't spend enough time saying, like, you know, my God, these guys are amazing. Uh, they're probably the biggest talents on the men's side ever. And so I think it's always important to keep centered and remember that all three of them are incredible no matter what happens. And you should appreciate them for the good things they've done instead of just pointing out what they lack. And so now, ironically, I'm going to move on to what Djokovic lacks. Um, (laughs) Like, I really do think one of the only arguments against him is that he has the fewest majors. He's... He's 6-9 and nine against Nadal in slams, but um, six of those losses came at the French Open. He's never lost to Nadal at the Australian Open, and the time he lost to him at Wimbledon, he retired injured halfway through the match. So I don't think that stat hurts him that much. And like I'm, I'm really struggling with things to come up with here. He has He's third in overall tournaments won, but something that I think isn't talked about enough. He has... If you combine majors and masters 1000s, he has more than Federer. Um, mm-hmm. And that means that the overall differential in titles, I think Federer has 103, Djokovic has 79 maybe. Like That's mostly yeah. 250s and 500s. And so, yeah. and so something I think is, how much should those really count in the debate? Like, Do you want the greatest of all time to be decided by these, these really small tournaments? So mm-hmm. I don't think that hurts Djokovic all that much, although he is third there. Um, he's probably going to pass Federer in weeks at number one. Yeah, I mean, I really think he just needs to focus on winning majors. If he gets another French Open, 
that would be huge for his case. He'd be the only one of the three to have at least two at every major. So I would say the biggest thing, and honestly, the only big thing is he's third in number of majors. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, man, it's 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 definitely tough because even if you try to find nuances, you you, you definitely see those in Federer's and Nadal's career far more i guess like it's definitely whatever Djokovic has bad has bad things nadal and federer have have probably worse uh yeah except save save maybe the number of majors as you said um Djokovic is number three of all time in the males circuit in wimbledon titles even so it's not he, he's an incredible versatile player he can play anywhere he can win against anyone um the 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 last thing that for me it's it's very crucial uh not crucial but like it makes Federer look even better um now getting back to to the maestro uh-huh. um is that Federer has been number one in the world for 237 weeks in a row in a row yeah so that's that's four years four and a half years in a row and even if you say like oh yeah there's competitions and and whatever I don't I don't know how Maybe this kind of comes into the 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 goat debate, and I don't know if Djokovic is ever going to be able to um, close that gap. Um, because, to be perfectly honest, by the time if Djokovic started, I think he would need at least like another three years of number one. By the time mm-hmm. he'd be like thirty six, that would be even more insane. Yeah. But say, for example, it 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 doesn't. It's not that it doesn't count, but it it almost is like a fun fact in a sense. Because uh, if you if you if you compare number one history the ones that you look most up to are actually Pete Sampras and Roger Federer yeah even in the weeks of number one I think I don't I think Novak is already second I'm not sure yeah I think he passed Sampras just before the quarantine started yeah but Sampras had the number one year-end ranking for six years in a row so that is a very insane fact as well definitely so um I don't necessarily know where I was going with this, but like it's just kind of like the number one uh, debate is is an interesting representation, and it's kind of like falling back into the rankings. I mentioned um, Villas a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, how the rankings are supposed to be a representation of the the player, so I really don't think that in terms of titles and uh, number one ranking, the number one ranking should count as more more valuable than the titles that they have because the titles are going to give the number one rankings. That, and that's as we point. mentioned, yeah. Nadal has had his injury periods. Um Djokovic has had his, his injury periods as well. Federer is just the one abnormally fit player that has only retired has never retired a match, I think. So yeah. It, it's amazing. And he's had the longest career as well. Yeah, it's that is, I'm not sure if this goes as a point for greatest of all time, mm-hmm. but it, it's definitely something that should be, we should be amazed at yeah. from, from his career. Yeah, um, and a couple of things I want to hit on. Um, you mentioned Djokovic at Wimbledon. Um, that's a tournament that's usually connected with Federer, but what doesn't get mentioned enough, in my opinion, is for the last decade, that's been Djokovic's place. He won it for the first time in 2011, back-to-back mm-hmm. titles 2014, 2015, and then back-to-back titles again in 18 and 19. Um, and he made the final in 2013 as well. So he's won more titles than Federer there in the last decade. And also, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned Sampras. 
He has 14 majors, you know, six year end number one finishes in a row. Some people say, you know, he's a GOAT candidate. And it, it, it sounds almost brutal to say this because he's such a great champion, but the fact that he doesn't have a French Open pretty much takes him out of the out of contention. Mm-hmm. Because you look at the three main candidates, the big three, and they've all won all four majors. And he just doesn't have that French Open. He has pretty limited success on clay overall. And like I said, it, it feels so almost mean to just dismiss him like that. But that's how small yeah. the margins are in the GOAT debate. Mm-hmm. You, you have to kind of criticize these legends, which just feels wrong. But it's a part of the debate, so... Yeah. And even if you consider the Australian Open, as I, I've mentioned as well, that lots of players didn't actually even go to play it. Right. Um, I don't, I, even even if that's the case, I don't know necessarily how would the, the weight of the Australian Open be. Mm-hmm. Um, because players still want it. Players still manage to go there and play uh, and, and win it. Um, I guess, I think Stefan Edberg has managed to win it uh, when he was on still on grass. And there's a, a whole different talk about as well like about how the surface surfaces have changed changed over the year um but yeah i guess the one thing that i was i will say about djokovic just to kind of like not finish this um as if djokovic is the goat and that's it um i think djokovic as i mentioned before he definitely benefits from the from the prime the later prime than Nadal and and Federer Mm -hmm. especially Federer um and and that's the one thing that I would have to look at and and it's it's, it would be interesting to look at their rivalry the the rivalries um especially against Nadal just to see um exactly what would that mean for their ages and their primes and how was the competition because who knows maybe maybe Djokovic did catch them a little weaker than they used to be uh, even if it was just like from 2015 onwards, that's he he won a ton of uh, majors from that time being. Yeah. So, so that that would be my only point um, that I would like to finish on, and uh, I would like to finish this maybe just kind of like trying to wrap up as well. Yeah. The sure. thing that you've mentioned, yeah, that you've uh, you said it was really important for me is that this is uh, this is just for fun. Like the the gold debate is it's it shouldn't lead how we how we attack how we how we watch tennis and how we see players um they're not our personal enemies honestly yeah and you would think they might be from some of the things people say but they're not exactly so yeah i i guess the the beautiful message at the end of this is have fun watching tennis and be a geek with statistics and stuff but but let's respect respect players i for the longest time, I, I hated Nadal because he beat Djokovic for so many levels. And I, I just couldn't bear the fact that Nadal would be winning. But now I'm even almost saying that he is the greatest of all time. So there is a there is a value in, in seeing all of those. Um, and the last thing is that this is just our opinions. <laughs> even though we did back some like facts and whatever, this is still our interpretation of those. So I guess everybody is invited to this discussion as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the great thing about this. There are so many ways to look at this. Our opinions are by no means the only opinions out there or the only valid mm-hmm. opinions out there. Federer has a great case as well. All three of them have very good cases. And like Andre said, I think the main thing to take away from this is we are really going to miss watching them 
when they're gone. They all respect each other. They've made themselves, they've made each other better. So I think the least we can do as fans is respect them. Always remember that they're great players. And even if you don't like a player, respect that they have, that they're an amazing tennis player and that they've changed the game forever and in a good way. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the whole point. I think the, and just kind of uh, mentioning like very briefly, there was an article that circulated later. How about the, I don't remember the author very sadly, but he's a historian that was mentioning how the GOAT debate is stupid or something like Uh that. And I will disagree only on the grounds that we have had this discussion and we talked about so many people and we definitely suffer from the fact that our age is, is not as advanced as so many people have been following tennis since the 50s. But we tried our best and we want to consider every option and we want to look at it. And we, at the end of the day, I just want to watch a good tennis match. And this is what's been the most painful during the whole time. This whole year has been zero no tennis. matches going on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even care about goats at this point. I just want I to understand. <laughs> I just want to watch like the big three play each other again and like yeah. try to hold off the next gen. I miss it so much. Yeah. Yeah. So this is it. This is the uh, the goat debate. It's never ending. Everybody should be respect each other and I just want to watch tennis. Please coronavirus just go away. <laughs> and <laughs> thank you so much, Owen. It's been a really, really great pleasure having you here. I can't wait to have this um uploaded um well for you who's who are listening this has been already uploaded but um yeah um thanks so much man thanks for bringing your knowledge thanks for having me i had a great time and i'll come back anytime if you'd have me cool uh i have already many plans for for topics that we can discuss um and uh, we already crossed a few of those during this this podcast alone so um listeners you can definitely expect owen in this in this podcast more times and um by the way um go visit his his blog racket the racket.com the blog.com yeah um updates are coming to the site soon so nice sweet i'll be um, i'll be sure to look for those um i'll leave the link in the um in the podcast description um if you're listening on spotify i don't know if you if you can Click on links there, but you can definitely follow on Anchor. And follow me on Facebook as well, uh, slash Tennis and Bagels, and on Instagram, at Tennis and Bagels. Uh, on Twitter, I think my handle is at and Rollenberg. So, yeah, you figure it out. <laughs> I'll just put it in the description. I don't feel like um, spelling my name right now. But yeah, that was that was the GOAT debate. Um, if you think otherwise, feel free to disagree respectfully with us on Twitter. Um and yeah, let's make let's hear the cases forever because it's never gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure oh, being th- here. As I said, thank you. It was um, a lot of fun being here. All right, I'll see you later. Bye, bye, everybody. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.